0: Okay, so this is the moment when, I'm sorry, I don't play London Calling by The Clash. Great song, but I've heard it a lot recently, you know, on the radio, on TV, in the movies, online, just everywhere, driving me crazy. Like it's shorthand cliche for the Summer Olympics in London. Yuck. The nice thing about London, though, is that there's no single voice to convey it. Right, Tipper?
1: Or some said Alan pull up but I night Tipper Iris have played again, Sam Truina England. You understand? What you up on MC true on I rest. It's good to add the feeling you're the best. Yes, it's good to add the feeling you're the best. Yes, it's good to add
2: the feeling you're the best. Yes, it's good to add the feeling you're the best. Yes.
0: This is Tipper Irie. He's one of the many voices of London. And his English is as London as it gets. The roots. Well they're Jamaican, as Jamaican in fact is the gold medal in the men's one hundred metres is likely to be. But Jamaica, it is London. Just like Bangladesh is, and Nigeria, Poland, China, Pakistan, Australia, Somalia, Lithuania. I could go on. I am going on. India. How could I forget India?
1: It's good to have the feeling of the best. Yes, it's good to have the the best will lose the I ate please tell please guess your men a pirate and I we'll answer yes a pirate is a person who is a blasted pest Come down shot man be
2: on him don't tear less and it's pure punk
0: So today a variety of Olympic and/or London related material like a glossary of that underrated Olympic sport archery also a translation app that's tailored just for Olympic settings so if for example You're an athlete and you don't speak English and and a doping official from the IOC asks you to mm, pee in a cup. Well, the app will do the work for you and the official won't be reduced to, you know, miming that particular action. Also this week, there's a story about censorship of combinations of certain words that British companies and retailers, they can't use right now in this little Olympic period. Combinations of words like gold and London. Also, an Olympic censorship story, a poetry Olympiad, and a debate over use of the word chalk ice to describe somebody. We have items on censorship at the Olympics, a poetry Olympiad, and something on Charles Dickens, Mr. London himself, as we get episodic with him. We also have in the pod this week, a very busy pod, an Olympic quiz. The word bonk, for example, yes, B-O-N-K. Is that a technical term in field hockey, triathlon, or swimming? All will be revealed. But we're going to start with another term that has nothing to do with the Olympics. And it comes out of a really nasty trial uh, that took place in Britain earlier this month. A black professional soccer player accused a white player of racism during a game. You may have read about it. It was in the U.S. newspapers. The two had been verbally jousting throughout the game. And then the white guy called the black guy a fricking black clown. I've, I've changed two of the words there, but not the word black. You get the idea. He did say black. Well, in Britain, you can now be tried for racist speech. And that's exactly what happened in this case. And during the trial, the white guy, he, he readily admitted to uttering the words in question. But he said he was repeating those words. He was repeating them sarcastically in response to having been accused of having initially said them. And he was acquitted. He was acquitted on grounds of lack of evidence. And one of the witnesses was one of his own teammates who was on the field at the time, and he overheard some of what was going on. And this player, this witness, he's black. His name is Ashley Cole. And he greatly irritated several other black players by seemingly rallying to the defense of his white colleague who'd been accused of racism. So after the trial... On Twitter, someone called Ashley Cole, this black witness, they called him a, quote, chalk ice. And this was then retweeted and endorsed by another well-known black player, Rio Ferdinand, who happens to be the brother of the player who was allegedly racially abused on the soccer field. Now, all this led the BBC to wonder whether the use of the words chalk ice is offensive. It's nearly always used as an insult, but I don't know, is it racist? Or is it perhaps a useful expression to describe someone who's betraying his racial loyalties? So the BBC brought in two writers to shed some light on all of this, as it does in these cases. Echo Eschen. he writes about culture, and the novelist Diran Adebayo. Putting the questions is Sarah Montague.
3: Where are you on the use of this term? How did you feel when you was well, being used? Well, I mean, the, the, the
1: simple thing is, <clears throat> it's an insulting term. It's a derogatory term, but it's also a slightly odd, and archaic term because it dates back, kind of, um, probably a few decades to the times when black people worried much more explicitly about their place in society when there are far fewer prominent black people in society, and um, and there was a lot of anxiety and hostility at times to people in more high-profile positions. So. There's no, I think there's no excuse for the term in as much as it is insulting and it is derogatory as a term, but it's also a slightly odd thing to to throw back into the mainstream. Because
3: you know. that question of racial loyalty is no longer so important. Well, yes, that yes, because
1: actually you have people like Rhea Ferdinand and Ashley Cole in the mainstream performing very well and not challenged or questioned about their race as a consequence of that. And it, like I said, it dates back to a time when there are far fewer Black people in prominent positions. But it and
3: shouldn't have been used, and he shouldn't have supported it. So yeah,
1: yes. Uh, yeah, I think so, yeah.
3: Dearin Adebayo um,
4: Well, I'll disagree about whether or not uh, it should have been used or not. I think that even though people like Rio Ferdinand and Ashley Cole are doing well, um, one of the things that the, 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 this rec- these recent issues around in football have pointed out is that race can still be a problem. Um, race is still a problem in society, and and certain you know other players may have issues with black players for one reason or other. So that you know, race is still live, and as such, I think it's still fair sometimes for some black people to feel there has to be a word for. Or, you know for for people to feel that somebody else in some way doesn't uh act in a good way towards their race or has, maybe has a less racial or ethnic loyalty. So you just have to be shooting.
3: very very, you're, the, the argument is you have to be particularly sensitive in so- a situation like this. Yeah, but but, but, but it, I think it's fair
4: enough in this kind of little black on black sort of little world that Ashley, Cole and Riel Ferdinand found themselves in over this use. I think it's fair enough for somebody to, to say that about somebody else, possibly. But, you know.
1: uh, well, I mean, you may say it's fair enough, but I don't think it's a fair concept, I think it's a fair term. One of the things it does do is give sucker to a larger debate. Every, basically, every time you talk about race, there are always people who pop up and start to say, well, racism doesn't really exist, it's all banter, everyone says things to each other. And the problem, the problem with reintroducing, with, with endorsing words like chalk ice, is that actually you, you start to get that kind of pushback. You start to get that dialogue that comes into play again. There'll be people listening to this programme right now who are saying well look, if Rio Ferdinand is endorsing words like that, then what's the problem? We, you know, Race doesn't really exist anymore. You can't, you can't live your life for
4: other people all the time. I mean, you can't go around as a black person thinking, well what will white people say about this if we no, get the no, wrong I idea? Do, I don't think, no, I don't think no, that's what I'm
1: saying. I'm saying that words have power, that it's important for every single person to be responsible about how they use those words have and how they deploy those words. Have you ever had
3: words like that used, used about you? Yeah, of
1: course I have. Yeah, when I was younger, like I said, when, you know, when I was a bit younger, those words were in more popular currency. And, and how, they hurt how did you feel about that? Yeah, they, they hurt. They're insulting. They're designed to be offensive. They're designed to disempower you as an individual. They can hurt slightly, but it depends on the context and how it's used. As I said, you know...
4: Um, I've been called coconut once or twice, you know, myself, which is another a similar word, you know, to choc Eyes. Often it's done by ignorant people who sort of say that yeah. uh, if somebody speaks, if a black person speaks too well or is even interested in the wrong subject or likes the wrong type of music, if it's folk music or whatever, then so-and-so is a coconut. And it's often used by, like, very sort of ghetto people who haven't got much, uh, sort of haven't got much of a sense of the, the range, if you like, of black experience or black interest. So it doesn't normally, it doesn't bother me because I was brought up by two African parents who brought me up in the way that they wanted to bring me up, you know? But so did you feel so, so, pressure I'm, on you uh,
3: as a result to conform but, to a certain expectation? No, because
4: you have to, in all these things, you have to be strong and be robust. And in all this discussion around insult and who's taking offence and I feel offended, you, you have to be strong. You know, if you're on a football field and you're eight years old and somebody calls you a certain name, as, as some white people did at school, it didn't bother me too much. But, why but, should but, I let them but during, bother me?
1: I would disagree to say that you have an absolute right to be offended. And then to be robust about it and then to say, "Okay, well, look, I'm not going to be defined by someone else's uh, terms of reference. I will still be myself. And I think that's what you're saying. But the place I disagree with is that I think it's important to be offended by words like that. It's important to say that we can't have words like that circulating freely and easily because the damage they do is to put each of us, black or indeed anyone else, into a specific position rather than allowing us to be ourselves.
4: Could you say, over and above that, you know, this was a very swift exchange on Twitter. Somebody said one thing that we had and retweeted. And you know, if Twitter is to stand for anything, and I'd rather it had some robust stuff rather than platitudinous stuff all the time, we have to not come down too hard when when we get this kind of outcome.
3: Dear Adabaya, Echo thank you both.
0: Okay, on to the Olympics now. And the Summer Olympics this year, they have a new unofficial, unlicensed name, and that is the Censorship Olympics. It's a reference to laws that reserve the use of certain Olympic language and imagery only for official sponsors. And those sponsors, Visa, McDonald's, and many others, they paid a lot of money for that exclusive privilege. The IOC, the International Olympic Committee, it requires these kinds of laws of every host nation. But the laws in Britain for 2012, they're the most stringent yet. The big show's Alex Gallifant reports now on how British companies and retailers are trying to get around them.
5: I'm in Reading, a town 30 minutes west of London by train. And the biggest thing I've seen here mentioning the Olympic Games is a poster for Coca-Cola. It's embellished with the five Olympic rings. And legally, there's no problem with that. Coke is a global sponsor of the Games. Coast to coast, a discount homeware store is not.
6: They're not letting any smaller businesses benefit from it. It's just, just for the big businesses, really.
5: Abhishek Bra works at Coast to Coast. He points out that lots and lots of taxpayer money has been spent on the Olympics. According to a parliamentary committee, the figure will be around $17 billion, all told. Not enough, though, to allow small businesses to associate themselves with the Games.
6: During the Olympics, we're not allowed to put any kind of Olympics, anything associated with the Olympics at all. Otherwise, we've been hearing on the news. They've been giving um, people fines...
5: In fact, a so-called brand army of inspectors is roaming the UK, scouring for businesses that are breaking the rules. Nick Cohen is the author of a study of censorship called You Can't Read This Book.
1: A florist who did a flower display of Olympic
7: rings, they had to be taken down. Um, A butcher who did sausages in the shape of Olympic rings, that had to go. People who wanted Olympic nicks, they had to be cancelled.
5: The inspectors are also hunting for language that infringes the rules for combinations of certain words, including games, 2012, gold, silver, and bronze, and London. The rules are so strict that, bar the Coke poster and some McDonald's packaging, you'd never know the Olympic Games were about to start. What you can't fail to notice, however, is that you're in Britain. Only a few weeks ago, Queen Elizabeth celebrated her Diamond Jubilee, british flags went up in towns across the country now those flags are doing double duty for the olympic games too says coffee shop worker alana richards she says it's all part of one big crazy celebration
3: we're calling it the great british summer because of the olympics the jubilee there are lots of stuff on where the tourism they're trying to get people to stay in england rather than go elsewhere for once
5: Some British businesses have got around the Olympic rules with clever campaigns. This version of the Beatles classic is for the department store Marks & Spencer. It has a promotion called On Your Marks for a summer to remember. But for most brands, using the British flag is a kind of code. It's an easy way to signal an association with the Olympics while avoiding all the legal traps. In a supermarket, Sainsbury's, I spotted the flag on packaging for deodorant, Cookies, broccoli, and more. They're just everywhere. Everywhere, says Liz Taylor, who works in the store.
3: Tea bags, soap powders.
5: Bread, potatoes, bottle openers.
3: It's on quite a lot of the stuff which we actually sell in store.
5: Even beer, even toilet paper. The British flag is everywhere. I did find one business willing to take a gamble, though. That was a chain of slot machine parlours. Starting today, they're running a scratch card promotion called How Many Will You Win?, The logo is a shiny gold medal. The contest runs until August 12th, the last day of the Olympic Games. Coincidentally, of course.
0: For The World, I'm Alex Galifant. Nice that someone got around those rules. Maybe for the next Summer Olympics, everyone will be banned from, I don't know, running really fast or jumping. Now, for something that isn't official, but it is free. Well, free so long as you have a smartphone. It's an app to help you get around if if you feel lost in the Olympic village and, and you don't speak English. The app was designed by a researcher at Brigham Young University in Utah. Brigham Young has a massive foreign languages program. It's, after all, a Mormon university, and foreign language learning is very important in the Mormon faith for getting the word out on all of those foreign missions that people go on. Here's Andrea Smartin reporting from Salt Lake
2: City. Say you're a volunteer at the London Olympics and a Korean tourist asks you a question. (laughs) But you don't speak Korean. Well, with a new translator application, you can use your smartphone for an instant translation.
8: Where is the toilet?
2: (laughs) That's Giovanni Tata, a professor at Brigham Young University. He's head of this translation project.
8: So now I can talk into it. The bathroom is to the left.
2: Tata's demonstrating how the app works with Hwa Lee, a Korean student volunteer who has translated, typed, and recorded phrases that would likely be used in an Olympic setting.
9: There are categories, so arrival and departure, business, poster service, sightseeing, with children.
2: In all, there are some 6,000 phrases that the translator provides for the Olympics.
9: So our kids are kids allowed? I say, visiting a village. So how many blah blah are there? And I would say, How do you say blah 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 in
2: Korean?
9: Oh, uh, if it's for a person, I would say 누구, 누구 If it's for a place, I say 어디.
2: Lee is one of dozens of students who volunteered for this project. Giovanni Tata, who's from Italy, says it's important to have native speakers do the translations.
8: Only a native speaker can give you the assurance that the the phrase is correct. And if you're giving directions and commands, you have to make sure that you have conveyed the right message. Otherwise, you could create some confusion.
2: The app is intended for use by Olympics volunteers, but also by emergency workers. So it's important that the message is conveyed accurately. In fact, Tata consulted with police and security officers in the UK to come up with some of the phrases. Tata says the app builds off Google Translate, but takes it a step further. Google Translate
8: is a great tool. The only problem is that many times the translation is not quite accurate, and sometimes it's even funny.
2: Tata says building the translator app at Brigham Young University makes a lot of sense. Many BYU students are Mormons who serve on missions around the world, so the school teaches 80 languages. BYU has been developing language tools for years, including a language learning app for the 2002 Olympics in Salt Lake City. Tata estimates there are 120 languages spoken on campus.
8: Amazingly enough, though, the language that we finished first was Chinese we got a lot of Chinese speakers here on campus. And then Korean, and then um, Portuguese, and then, um, of course, Spanish. Now, in some languages, we only had one volunteer, so it's taking a lot longer to get all the
2: phrases translated. Tata says they've done as much as they can to build the app database before the start of the London Games, but he expects it to grow as people add to it. If someone speaks a phrase that's not already in the database, that native speaker can confirm that the translation is correct, and then it's automatically added.
8: We see it as something like Wikipedia for translation. The more people use it, the more people contribute to it, the better the product will get. Yes, initially it's maybe just for the Olympics, but eventually it could become a useful tool for people who travel all over the world.
2: In fact, Tata wants to use the app for his own trip to Egypt later this summer. In addition to his interest in languages, Tata is an Egyptologist.
8: I've developed language learning training software, but it's not as exciting as a translator because... I'll be one of the first users. When I go to Egypt, I know a little bit, but not enough. With this, I can be able to communicate.
2: The app is available for free on the Android and Apple platforms. Tata says it's a non-profit venture for now, but that could change as it grows. For The World, I'm Andrea Smartin in Salt Lake City. Some Olympic words now. Some archery terms. Yes,
0: archery. I know, unless you're Korean. You probably haven't seen much Olympic archery. The Koreans, they tend to clean up with the archery medals. Oh, that reminds me. We're all going to have to listen to commentators verbing the noun medal, you know, saying "meddling" all the time. I'm I'm really not that picky about English, but to meddle, it's just it's just such nasty commentator speak. Anyway, back to archery. It may this year get onto non-Korean TV because it's taking place at a a really storied venue. The best-known cricket ground in the world is called Lords in northwest London. Very nice place. A bit windy, apparently, for archery. So now we have Liz Minot. She's a former competitive archer, and she's demystifying the technicalities of archery one term at a time. The BBC's Russell Fuller, along with Steve Bunce, are asking the questions. First technical term for Liz Minot is anchor point.
3: Right, well, if you think about a gun, a gun's got a front sight and a back sight. In archery, we haven't got a back sight. So an anchor point is where the string and the hand touch the face at full draw. And the more consistent that anchor point is, the better the result. And when you watch this on TV, when they release the arrow, there should be a mark, a really hard line on their face. And you're looking for that consistency because a few mil difference in that anchor point can mean the difference between hitting the target and missing.
6: And someone like you, you can spot that straight away, Liz, am mm-hmm. I right? You can tell. Before the arrow's travelled the 70 metres across or downhill against the wind and in the rain, you can tell if Im's done it.
9: I hope
3: so. If you are
6: fletching, what are you doing?
3: Well, a fletching is the small colourful wings on the back of the arrow. And, ah, and so if it's
9: so I, I misused it. It's not a verb. No. It's a noun.
3: If you are fletching, it yeah. means you're sat in front of the TV, slogging <laughs> your way out and putting your fletchings on your arrows. Oh good. <laughs> yeah. So, so on the TV, we often see, you know, the Robin Hood or the Avatar... Um, Arrows and they've got feathers on the end, and and, and fletchings are just the up to date plastic versions of those.
6: And what about a clicker? I feel like I should know what a clicker is, but I, I know that you'll
3: tell me anyway. Now, a clicker is a thin piece of metal attached to the handle of the bow. It goes over the arrow while it's pulled back and literally clicks against the handle when the archer reaches full draw. It's a really important piece of kit. It's really cheap, but it's really, really important. The tricky thing is with the the clicker is that the noise from the spectators, and of course in Lords we're only looking three metres, five metres away from the archers. If they get excited and get a little bit loud, the archers may not hear that click.
6: Mm. Or the wrong Uh, click.
3: Or the wrong click. And Mm. that's what we saw at the Commonwealth Games in Delhi. And I think that's one of the reasons why the girls didn't bring home the gold. The
0: girls in question being the English girls of the Commonwealth Games. And noisy or not, come rain or shine, probably rain, it'll be clickers at the ready on the cricket field. And there's a true or false quiz on Olympic sports terminology. I don't think there's any more archery terms. Later on in the pod, sort of informative and a bit silly at the same time. But right now, something on the cultural Olympiad. Is there an official cultural Olympiad? Probably. Well, let me then use the term loosely, because the following item may not be officially listed as part of the Olympiad. You've probably heard about the Shakespeare Festival in London this year, where they're having all of these performances at the Globe Theatre of Shakespeare plays in 38 different languages. Carol and I talked about it when it was first announced, and there's been a ton of media on the performances themselves, so I'm going to leave that alone, and instead do something about Poetry Parnassus. This is a festival of words... From around the world, the organizers sent out invitations to all 204 nations competing in the Olympics to also take part in this as a, as a kind of a international poetry thon. The head organizer is himself a poet, Simon Armitage, and he told the BBC's John Wilson that some nations haven't responded yet. We still have twenty-three gaps in that list to uh,
7: to fill, but that's really the the, the template. And uh, it's so, what are, what are the, where are the places on the globe where there is a poet waiting to be called? Or I presume you've put the invitations out to those countries. Yeah, you? we have. There's been a big nominations process. We had over six thousand nominations and suggestions
10: from uh, various people worldwide who, who they'd like to see at uh, Parnassus. uh But it's country. I mean, I won't run through the whole list, but it's countries like uh, Bhutan. Liberia, Madagascar, Monaco, couldn't find a poet in, in, in Monaco, <laughs> and Timor-Leste and, and Vanuatu. It's probably worth saying that we're not just looking for anybody from that country who might have written a poem. You know, this is a, a curated event. We've been reading hundreds, if not thousands, of books and listening to people online and listening to their performances
7: as well. So, you know, we, we, we're, we're interested in the work. And what's, what's the problem with those countries? I mean, is that generally the problem, that they are countries that are ongoing some kind of social or economic or political difficulty and they've got other things to deal with. I don't think so, no, because we, you know, we have
10: poets coming from parts of the world that are in conflict, that are at war. It's just that, um, you know, poets just haven't been conspicuous uh, either through their published works or on the internet. I mean, you know, you go to the internet thinking it is the, the font of all knowledge, but we've simply not been able to identify anybody from that country. So, so you've, it, you've googled Papua New Guinea plus poet, and exactly. You well, it. you know, it, it was as crude as that to begin with. We've also been c- consulting uh, experts and specialists. in in world literature and universities and embassies. Uh, But for whatever reasons, there are certain countries that uh, we've still not identified anybody. So we're still open to suggestion for those countries.
7: You've had acceptances from some poetic superstars. Seamus Heaney's representing Ireland and YC Inc is coming, representing Nigeria. So... Are they bringing something of their country in the poetry that they will be delivering at your version of Panassas?
10: Well, I think by definition they won't be able to help but bring something of their country, whether it's in their accent... Uh, or in their language, or in, you know the way that they put words together. But it's not the in the page. remit. You haven't it said you have to write about no, It certainly isn't. No, and in, in fact, it's the opposite of that. And uh, I've, I've tried to make it very clear to people that we're not expecting them to come, you know, draped in their flag or wearing their national costume. Although privately, I do hope a few might turn up in their national costume. Are you, you, you're representing
7: England, are you? No, the United uh, Kingdom. Or no, Great
10: Britain? Great Britain. Yeah. No, we, we've we've uh, we've invited Joe Shapcott, who's uh, agreed to do it and uh, came along today to the press launch. So we're thrilled about. That because uh, you know, Joe's a wonderful poet and, and writing wonderfully well at this point in her
7: writing life. But I'll, I'll be chipping in with various bits here, here and there. So, 23 poets yet to find. There is yeah. the chance, of course, you'll end up with the poetic equivalent of uh, Eddie the Eagle representing some of these countries. I mean, you say you, they have to be what? Practicing poets? They have to be recognised as poets? They have to be good. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's
10: the start. They, they have to be producing work that excites us, or that or, or that we we admire. I mean, we're not just uh, trying to fill the numbers here. It's not that kind of. Uh, you know, it, it is a, an internationally important poetry festival and conference and to begin with there were, there were a huge number of countries about whose poetry we knew very little or sometimes nothing and it's been a, an enormous education finding out about people and, and places but it may be that there are poets uh, from those countries who are living elsewhere in the world and may even be living here in Britain uh, which would save us a little bit in airfares at mm. this late stage
7: in the day. And you're billing it as a poetry. Parnassus, just take us back to the origin of that word, it's the place where the muses gave inspiration to the poets and the uh, that was Mount Olympus, wasn't it? it?
10: this links in with the Olympic idea. Mount Parnassus in Greece is the, the sacred home of the god Apollo, the Muses, which of course, you know, we, we, we would be nothing without. And it's said to be the home of Orpheus as well, with his lyre, who's often described mm. as the first poet. So we're just trying to create a little you know, a little foot slope of Mount Parnassus along the banks of the Thames and throughout the, the South Bank
7: complex. And so you're there as curator organiser, you'll be there with a clipboard, counting them in, ticking them off, but also with a notebook? Do you think it might spark some kind of poetic inspiration, this event?
10: I would imagine that something will come out of it. I mean, one of my... Expectations for the week, and this normally happens every time poets get together is that you know relationships are formed, networks are formed, translation occurs uh, that's what I want to happen I, I, I imagine I might be a bit too busy during the week to write anything, but i'll I'll, I'll be the guy uh, lying on his back at the end of the week,
0: exhausted but uh, but happy. Simon Armitage talking with the BBC's John Wilson, and if you happen to be in London for the Olympics, well, poetry Parnassus has actually taken place that's weird. I guess they wanted to get it over and done with before the sport started. In any case, I'll link to their website, which has got some nice video of some of the readings, and there's also an anthology of the poems read at Poetry Parnassus. All of that information at theworld.org language. And let's stick to the theme of things you won't be able to do while you're in London, like, I don't know, get a suntan. Here's another thing. You will not be able to visit the official museum of one of London's greatest writers, a man who described the city in all its glory and squalor, Dickens. The Charles Dickens Museum, which in this year of the Olympics, in this 200th anniversary of his birth, in this of all years, the museum is closed for renovations. We did a story on that in the big show. I'll link to that. I won't play it here. But here is a very cool Dickens thing. You can now read Dickens in installments online. Of course his novels they originally appeared in serial episodic form as pamphlets and now in a sense they're back as the big show's clark boyd reports
11: we begin with a bit of required reading for many a high school english student
2: it was the best of
12: times it was the worst of times it was the age of wisdom it
13: was the age of foolishness
11: Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. It's a daunting read. The Penguin Classics edition of the novel runs to nearly 550 pages. But what if you could read it in the form in which it originally appeared?
12: Every single one of Dickens' novels is serialized. Some of them in weekly parts, but more commonly in monthly parts.
11: Joel Bratton is a Dickens scholar.
12: And the usual form for that would be the customer would pay one shilling, and you'd get a booklet with... 32 pages of text and two illustrations and then an assortment of interesting ads that would offer all kinds of (laughs) goods and services.
11: Bratton teaches at Worcester Polytechnic Institute in Worcester, Massachusetts. The Institute's Gordon Library is home to a treasure trove of Dickens' material. That trove includes a large number of the original serial installments of Dickens' novels. Those are rare, Bratton says. If you were a wealthy
12: purchaser, you could take those parts to your book binder, have your own library binding put on, have all the advertisements taken out, place the illustrations in the proper places, and then you'd have a, a first edition library binding for your shelf. And that's what a lot of people did. So. Uh, In many cases, the serial installments don't survive as serial installments.
11: Unfortunately for both scholars and the public, the serials at Worcester Polytechnic Institute are tucked away in a climate-controlled part of the library. Due to the age and conditions of the documents, access is restricted. But Bratton and others at the Institute wanted to take a page, so to speak, out of Dickens' own playbook. They wanted to share the author's work in its original form with as many people as possible. So they've launched a massive scanning project— The idea is to put the serials, some 20,000 pages of material, online. That way, anyone who can get on the net can access them, search them, and enjoy them. Kathy Marquise is the conservation librarian in charge of the project. She says she can scan about 32 pages in half an hour. The pages, she says, are fragile. But her job is not necessarily to make a given page easier to read.
12: I'm not
2: worried about making it look pretty. I want it to look like someone's there using the original. So within the scans, you can see how the original pamphlets were stitched. And all of that we're we're able to capture very nicely with the technology we have. You know, you can tell that the pages, you know, the edges of the pages are a little dirty and a little bit crimped and a little curled. So it's a little bit more tactile, I think, um, the experience.
11: But the real joy, says Dickens scholar Joel Bratton, is to experience the way serialization affected Dickens' writing style. Bratton points to the author's pacing, his characterization, and more.
12: I get a different feeling from reading the novels in their original form. And I think that part of that has to do with the preservation of Dickens's unique spellings and capitalizations and punctuation. Those are matters that often got regularized not just in modern paperback editions, but even in later lifetime editions of Dickens's.
11: The scanning project at Worcester Polytechnic Institute is beginning at the end. The first novel being scanned is Dickens' last. It's an unfinished work called The Mystery of Edwin Drood. For The World, this is Clark Boyd.
0: And there are now more Dickens novels from this project available. They're not all scanned yet, but several more are. It works well. I took a look at Great Expectations. I kind of regret now not having read it originally that way. I, I'm sure it would have worked better in, you know, in those installments, just like a TV series. Until, I suppose, On Demand and DVDs destroyed that, that sense of a weekly installment. Yeah, think of it that way. You know, watching something like The Wire or, or that fantastic Danish thriller series, The Killing, watching the episodes back to back or even on consecutive days, as you can do with the DVDs, it takes something away from the pleasure of anticipation of how certain characters are going to fare or how some mystery plays out. Plus, I, I think you've just got a greater tolerance of the many, well, absurd plot twists if if they're spaced out over time and it must have been the same with dickens you read an installment seems a bit far fetched you know the end of the chapter has got some cliffhanging moment to it but then you have this whole delicious period of time where you just anticipate things until you get your hands on the next pamphlet maybe i'll try and do that next time with a, a dickens novel i haven't read like Little Dorrit, just read it in installments. In any case, I'll post a link to that online Dickens project, Project Boz as it's called, at the Worcester Polytechnic Institute. And back now to London.
6: London is there for the taking. A rich city. Food, women, gold. My men have come a long way for this. I see we take London now.
8: Could be London next. Oh, no. All around London.
3: taking it away from you and i'm getting out you ain't
13: going nowhere
0: and while we're at it let's have a bit of adele not singing but the glory of adele talking
3: someone told me about the awards like a month before that brit awards were setting it up and i just didn't believe them so I was like, yeah, whatever. Um, but then, and then, like, I remember my manager told me, so I went around to all my family going, I've been nominated for this Brit Award, but th- my manager was like, no, you've won. So that was, it was a bit weird. It's, it's a bit weird getting a Brit Award before we've done anything, isn't it. <laughs>
0: the English language, as rendered by a Londoner. Now, as far as Boris Johnson is concerned, the two, English and London, they're very much connected. Well, he would say that, wouldn't he? Boris Johnson He's mayor of London. And he's written a book bigging up the city and the language. It's called Boris Johnson's Life of London. And part of the reason that he thinks London is so important, such a huge influence on the English language, is that London is really a place unto itself. It's separate from the rest of Britain, for better or worse. And it's always been home to tons of outsiders. They bring new languages, new ideas, new culture, And Londoners, generally speaking, they take it on board. Well, I suppose except for 2,000 years ago when Boudicca, who was a local tribal queen, she decided to take London back from the Romans. And take it back she did, but there weren't that many Romans left afterwards until, of course, they retook the city a little bit later, completely rebuilt it. Anyways, Londoners like to think of themselves as a little bit friendlier these days to outsiders. So... We're going to hear a roundtable discussion with Boris Johnson talking about his book, just where he likes to be at the center of things. And you'll hear from historical biographer Alison Weir and historian Norman Davis and the BBC's Andrew Marr while he tries to keep control. First here is Boris making the case for London as one of the world's most important cities ever, ever, right alongside ancient Athens and
13: ancient Rome. I think it's up there. It's certainly up there. Yeah. There's a programmatic city, it's a city that has informed the planet and uh, dictated uh, or helped to shape customs and habits, language uh, around the world. I think London really does rank with those two ancient uh, cities. So my, my book is where really sort of attempt to explain what it is that has produced this greatness and always, always tell the news through people, look at some of the people who have been there at some of the the critical mm. moments and indeed contributed great things, Shakespeare, all the rest of it. And I suppose I found a great big conglomerate of things that make London great, and uh, there'll be uh, rock music, music, finance, banking, stability, Mm -hmm. the rule of law, journalism, popular journalism. But what what it also shows, I'm afraid, is, and this is something that some people find irritating, it does show, I think, that greatness is produced by the spark of competition. And London is an arena where talents come together and mm. not, and jostle. And it's because of that jostling that you get Shakespeare. If Shakespeare hadn't had to compete with Decker and Kid and Marlowe and all these other guys, he wouldn't necessarily have put so many bums on seats. Has there been a time when London was as Varied and as distinct compared to the rest of the country. I mean, London sort of does yes, sit out absolutely. as a kind of uh, city-state. I mean, London, moment. I think, I think there's, there's scarcely been a time in the history of the city when fewer than 20% of the population were, were born abroad. It's now, up, I think, up to about 36%. And don't forget, London was founded by a bunch of pushy Italian immigrants. Mm. And when the, the first city, Lund, Londinium, was a collection of Scythians and Belgians and Serbs and Turks and heaven knows what they were massacred. Oh. Uh, every single one of them by Celts. And the paradox is: well, we think of Boudica as a great national heroine. In fact, you know, a great <laughs> achievement was really to, to prompt the Romans to encourage the Romans to invest in London infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Was the most important thing because because she destroyed it first. Um, and in terms of the sort of the, the, the selection that you made, you did, did you just go through sort of century by century, and think, well, who's who's going to be the no, most important? I, I wanted I wanted people who had done things that uh, I thought emblematise also were, 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 were part of what London had done for the world. And so I wanted Chaucer because he basically mm. took the hu- two great strains of our language and fused them together and created this dominant mm. language which has more uh, lexemes than any other language on the world in the world by a factor of, of, of two, I think. Uh, I wanted Shakespeare because he really cre- recreated uh, drama and sent it around the world. 1609. Hamlet was performed off the coast Africa, of, yeah. uh, of Africa, Sierra Leone. In yeah. German mm. German companies were performing Hamlet uh, in German in the 1620s. It's absolutely incredible the spread of uh, of those ideas. Um, the greatest film ever made about London, I think, was Passport to Pimlico, which is about yes. part of London finding discovering that it's actually not in London at all. It's it's Burgundian. Um, they, 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 there's a charter, they find. They're Burgundians. There's a wonderful line, Blimey, I'm a foreigner, says one of them. But in a sense, that's the underlying message of your book. I mean, the number of people who've come into London from different places Yes, parties. almost all the characters. Blimey, almost yeah. all the characters, I'm afraid. Although they, they, you, you could uh, make a, quite a good case of them being being Londoners, they, they've almost all been uh, born in some other city. They come to London to make something of themselves. Mm. What are the rest of it? Alison, what do you make of this?
3: I think it's a fascinating approach, looking at a city um, and its development through people who have achieved a lot in different areas. And I found that, I found that uh, being particularly interested in Chaucer, of course, I was so glad you included him. Isn't he great? <laughs> he's wonderful, yes, and, absolutely. And, uh, and it's, it, he captures some of the spirit of London at that time and life at that time. We learn so much, as, from, as with Shakespeare.
13: And they're all really still together, aren't they? All those guys in, in Chaucer, you know, the kind of the people with the colossal zit on their nose and the, the, the fornicating All human and life is there. Human all... nature
3: doesn't change. <laughs> That's still there. Norman.
13: Uh, yes, it's uh, absolute vintage Borician uh, <laughs> rhetoric, uh, which uh, is very enjoyable. But he does take sides, very much on the side, if you like, of the imperial migrants as opposed to the, the hard-working natives. You know, the, the ancient Britons are boneheaded, <laughs> Well, that's because they kill the Romans, Norman. Well, absolutely. The, you mean, you okay. take the side of the uh, Italians, as you, uh, as, as you say. Similarly, as you um, talk very unkindly about the English, who were, uh, I right. think, stuffed, licked, um, conquered by, by no, the, I by the Normans. No, on I, the I contrary, no, no. On the contrary, I, that's <laughs> a Norman. No, no, that's <laughs> no, that's no, that's a description of that's a that's very unfair. I give, I give, Al, I rescue, I rescue Alfred the Great. From the uh, oblivion to which he has been consigned by modern historians, I, I, just, I explain how he helped create the idea of the Anglo-Saxon world. And uh, I think uh, the concept of, uh, of the English kingdom, that he, and the English language, king of all, ongle kin, uh, that he is uh, by the end, I think, I, I think that's, that's very firmly there.
0: Boris Johnson, or as I refer to him, and as many other people refer to him, just simply Boris, mayor of London, champion of London, the city that in his view formed English more than any other place. And the argument that Boris makes about lexemes, that English has so many and that reflects on the multifariousness of the language and and the openness of London's, at least I think that's the point he's trying to make. Well, I imagine there are linguists who think that's utter codswallop, as Boris might say. Okay, last up in this marathon of a pod, Sorry about that pun. Last up, a return to Olympics terminology and those two cheeky chappies, Russell Fuller and Stephen Bunce. And they're playing the game Call My Bluff, beloved of many radio shows, including Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me if you listen to that. Here goes.
9: I'm going to give you a phrase or term and three options, Mm Buncey, and you need to identify which one of these is true. First one is bonk. Mm -hmm. Is it a technical term for really clattering a hockey ball, for example, that player gave the ball a right bonk. Mm-hmm. Is it a phrase from triathlon for when someone runs out of steam? So you might say, mm-hmm. it's a bonk when a triathlete can go no further, He's hits bonked. the wall. Yeah. He's bonked, precisely. Yeah. Or is it when a swimmer
6: bashes their head on the side of the pool when turning? Mm-hmm. Well, the, the, the last one sounds like, like the sound it would make. That's I mean if you're underwater and you've uh, been swimming and someone's whacked the pool it does actually sound like a bonk. I, I think I think I'm going to go for the um, I don't think it's the triathlon. I don't think it is because too many people would be walking around saying uh, he was he was bonking all weekend. I mean it's not going to happen, Russell. It's not going to be the triathlons and if it is it needs to change because it's just ripe for too much. I'm going to go with number one. Well, triathlon are going to have to change their terminology.
9: Unbelievable bubble. Technically, it's when the glycogen reserves in the muscle and liver run out and the athlete has a bonk.
6: Is it, a, is it an acronym? Or they conk out. Is it an acronym
9: for something? No, it rhymes with conk, but that's okay. as far as I can go. One more. Fluffus. Is fluffus mm-hmm. a double somersault with a twist in trampolining? Yep. Is it... The polite way of referring to an illegal grip in wrestling. So, he caught him in the fluffers, mm-hmm. for example. Is it a flat tire in BMX, or
6: is it something you might find in your tummy button? Um, I'm going to go for the. Um, I'm actually going to go for the. Uh, I'm going to go for the for the wrestling. It should
9: be the wrestling. It, it should be. It? It's not though, is it's it? It's not. It's a no. much duller answer than that. It's a double somersault with a twist in
0: trampoline. Oh yes, of course. Well enjoy the trampolining and the wrestling and all the other Olympic events, whatever your thing is. And if none of them is your thing, well, I still hope you enjoyed this pod. See you on Facebook at the World in Words page or on Twitter. On Twitter, I go by Patrick Cox. That's P-A-T-R-I-C-O-X. Or go to theworld.org slash language. I'll post several links there of stuff that came up in this pod. And I'll also post a link to a previous pod That had a couple of items on Cockney rhyming slang. More next week, see you then.
1: This ain't the down, it's the upbeat, make it complete. So what's the story? Guaranteed accuracy, enhanced CD. Latest technology, darts at treble 20. Huge non-recoopable advance, majors be vigilant. I excel in both content and deliverance. So let's put on our classics and we'll have a little dance, shall we?